0: Welcome to the Unpacked Podcast, a podcast devoted to unpacking faith, life, and leadership. The goal, to simplify big ideas for greater impact in everyday people like you and me. Well hey everyone and welcome to episode number three of our podcast. My name is Skylar Elmer and I hope that our conversation today will give you the encouragement you need to make greater impact in your life. I'm really excited about my conversation today. I got the opportunity to sit down with Richard Knopf who is the professor of apologetics and philosophy up at Lincoln Christian University. He's also the director of a ministry called Room for Doubt which if you haven't checked it out you will want to after this conversation. Today we get to talk about doubt in the Bible. Has doubt in Christianity increased because more and more people are becoming unfamiliar with the Bible? Richard's answer was both shocking and a wake up call. So, enough with my introduction. Let's jump into my conversation with Richard Knopp. Well, I'm honored to have as my guest Richard Knopp. Rich, thanks so much for uh, being here. It's my
1: pleasure. Thank you for asking me to come.
0: Absolutely. Um, well, I'm so excited. Um, I know you have um, uh, what Lincoln is doing and what you're a part of with Room for Doubt is um, is incredible, and so it's benefiting the church in so many ways. And so, um, Rich, I guess before we begin, would you mind just kind of introducing yourself? You know, who are you? What do you do? And maybe what is your role uh, for Room for Doubt? How did it get started?
1: Okay. Well, I guess. Uh... I could begin by saying I'm a PK, I'm a preacher's kid. So I was uh, born and bred in the confines, you might say, of the church. At least that's how I looked at it at times. How could I break out of here type thing? But, uh, you know, I, I was one of those people who didn't have a choice but to go to church all the time because my dad was a preacher. And mm-hmm. uh, that uh, is both a wonderful blessing, but at the same time, it was uh, it also presented uh, a variety of challenges. Um, I didn't really have many doubts as I was growing up. My dad spoke with great conviction. I pretty much uh, presumed that the Christian faith was true, but as I grew older, uh, both in high school and, and into my college years, I began to ask the fundamental question, is it really true? And I began to engage other alternatives and wonder Why should I believe uh, Christianity is any truer than any other other philosophical or religious option? So, you know, I pursued some uh, education. I went to a sister Christian college of Lincoln. Um, Scatter, you went to Ozark, and it was a sister school of uh, Ozark. It's very similar to both of them. And I learned, I think, a lot about the Bible. Grew in my uh, faith development. But uh, I had a couple of experiences, even during my college years, that prompted me to wonder whether I really could uh, present a convincing case to anybody Mm -hmm. about the truth of Christianity. So uh, I remember having um, kind of a a life-changing event with a, a life insurance salesman at one point who was very persistent and wanted me to buy his life insurance, and I decided, okay, I'll do this, and... I had this evangelistic strategy in mind. And uh, my plan was, as soon as I signed my name to his insurance papers and bought it, because I was freshly married at the time, needed to protect my wife just in case, um, I was going to ask him, uh, I was going to put it this way, now that I have purchased your life insurance, have you ever considered eternal life insurance? And I thought, you know, at that point, I was about to graduate from my undergraduate Christian college. I could see this new, you know, person coming to jesus and i was going to be directly involved in in that conversion Uh, but he without blinking an eye he responded to me and he said i don't care much for metaphysics Mm -hmm. and at that point i just stopped and i really don't remember what i said to him in response because i had two problems first problem was i had no idea what he just said (laughs) <laughs> yeah. uh, and secondly, I knew even less how it, how I was going to respond to it. So that was a uh, I had already kind of directed my uh, plans to come to Lincoln, and to study with uh, somebody who specialized in philosophy and theology and Christian apologetics, but that particular uh, experience in my life really catapulted me even further to see the necessity of not just knowing a lot about the word of God, but knowing enough about the world uh, that mm. God has created and the different philosophical alternatives. I felt like I just needed to be much better prepared as a minister, uh, whether I did it professionally or as a layperson, I needed to be better prepared for the alternatives and to be able to present a more persuasive and effective case for the Christian faith, so I went to Lincoln and I did a couple of more degrees in philosophy and finished a Ph.D. at the University of Illinois in philosophy. I came wow. back to teach to Lincoln in, uh, at Lincoln in 1983. It sounds terrible when I say uh, last century. I went to teach at Lincoln. <laughs> well, I have been here for a long time, and uh, I currently teach in the undergraduate college as well as in the seminary. I teach a required freshman course called an introduction to worldviews where I survey various philosophical and religious alternatives. I teach other classes in philosophy and apologetics, classes in Christianity and science, uh, logic and uh, ethics. So uh, that's what I've been doing. Now since 2013, I've been involved in a grant-funded program called Room for Doubt. And this is a program that uh, started because a Christian gentleman came to Lincoln who was convinced that we have a major problem in our churches, uh, at least one. But one of them was we're losing far too many of our young people. Um, our kids are raised in church, many of them. They do the Sunday school thing, you know, the, the summer camp thing, the Christian youth thing maybe short-term mission trips thing. And it seems like they have a fun and enjoyable experience, but uh, six months to a year after they're out of high school, uh, many of them have just wandered away from church, and far too many of them have wandered away from faith itself. So he came to us, and he had some resources he wanted to share, and we partnered with him to set up this program that we ended up calling Room for Doubt. Now, the ironic thing about it is we're really not encouraging doubt for doubt's sake. We're not trying to increase doubt as though that in itself is a virtue. But what we have been trying to do is to open the door for people to feel welcome to come in and share their questions and even to express their doubts. So I'm convinced that one of the best ways to strengthen faith, not only of our church young people, but to strengthen the faith of adults uh, and college-age youth in the church is to make them feel like it's it's absolutely okay for them to ask the tough questions and even to express their sincere doubts. And then we're in a position of being able to respond to them. So uh, I've been blessed doing that program. And then there's another program called Worldview Eyes that is a youth-oriented program, also grant-funded We've been blessed with over a million dollars from the Lilly Endowment out of Indianapolis uh, to do work with another grant program called Worldview Eyes. It's uh, worldview, E Y E S dot org. And I have many of my resources available on that website as well.
0: That's awesome. Um, I, I have to say, if uh, if you're not familiar with Room for Doubt or Worldview Eyes, uh, we are in a series as a church kind of unpacking doubt. I have been using uh, both of those websites pretty religiously um, as I've been preparing my sermons. It is a fantastic ministry uh, with some great, great, great resources, um, a lot of which uh, Rich has kind of been um, I guess, authored behind and, and directed and, and helped out. So thanks for, uh, for that, Rich. And if you haven't been to that website, please go do that. Um, well, Rich,
1: um, you kind of mentioned that. Let me that. mention, by the way, we have a great yeah. mobile app, uh, Room for Doubt app. So okay. uh, I, it's not just a website, but we've got a great mobile app uh, available on for Android and uh, Apple devices. And uh, almost all of our resources you can take with you in your pocket, literally. It's got a great search engine on it. So if you're talking to somebody about a particular question or an issue, you can actually do a search in the app and hunt up some articles and even some videos that we would provide responses to.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Um, I did I did not realize you had an app, so I am going to get that on well, the Well, shame
1: phone, on so. you, and you need to look at that <laughs> religiously as well.
0: I will. I will. Um, well, Rich, you know, as I kind of have been diving into this website and some of the stuff that you, um, that you guys have put out for Room for Doubt, um, one of the core principles uh, for Room for Doubt is to encourage questions. Um, do you mind unpacking this a little bit? I know that there are some who look at asking questions and, and see that as harmful uh, for the faith, especially among youth.
1: Yeah, I, that is a pretty popular perception. I think that uh, church leaders and sometimes parents and other uh, other folks in the church, as Christians in general, have about the relationship between their faith and asking questions and God forbid having any doubts, because they're seen often as uh, as mutually incompatible. Um, it's what I call the seesaw view of faith and doubt. It's like you're on a seesaw, you know, like this. And if your faith is really strong, then you don't have any doubts. And if you start having doubts, then, you know, your faith has bottomed out. And and there's a sense in which, you know, that's, that's a proper way of looking at it. I mean, there are verses in the New Testament where, you know, Jesus says to, uh, Peter when he's sinking in the water, you know, you, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Um, Mm -hmm. Or James tells us, you know, uh, not to be disbelieving. uh, Stop the doubting kind of thing. But I think it's very important to distinguish between two different kinds of doubts. Mm -hmm. Um, One kind of doubt is, is a, a, a doubt of disbelief. Mm
0: -hmm. Like
1: somebody tells you something, and there's just no way you're going to believe it, and you say, "Well, I doubt that it's like i'm already made up my mind, and I already know it's not true so if you if you take doubt that way, and I think that's typically the way these bible verses are are intended they're using don't doubt in the sense of disbelief oh, but they're they're Uh, There's another very, very important kind of doubt. And it's actually a kind of doubt that we experience more frequently, uh, including Christians. And that's just the kind of doubt that arises when we have to acknowledge the fact that we don't have absolute certainty about something. Now, I am very convinced and convicted of God's existence and of Jesus as God's Son coming in the flesh of his death and his bodily resurrection. I'm convinced of the the, uh, the truthfulness of Scripture. But I don't have absolute certainty about any of that. I have high degree of confidence, and I believe it's worth my life's commitment to it. And it's the best option by far of any other alternative. But I don't have absolute certainty about it. So if you don't have absolute certainty then by consequence there is always room for doubt hmm. now the the unfortunate implication that some christians have there is then is that they take doubt only in that one sense and they tend to make people feel uncomfortable or even sinful for doubting as though somehow it it is incompatible with their faith When in fact, that person may just be having some doubts because they don't have absolute certainty about something. Hmm. So, when we see um, the importance of doubt in that sense, that's why this name that we came up with uh, called Room for Doubt, I think is so effective. Because all we're trying to do is just to say to anybody, whether they are in the church, on the fence, or outside the church, hey, come to the table. And, you know, the table. Is inside this door and we're gonna open the door for you and we want you to know that it's okay for you to have questions and even to express your doubts and even if you disbelieve even if you have doubt in the sense of disbelief still come to the table and let's talk about why you don't believe what you believe um, and then we can talk about it. It, it it is a risk I will say that it's a risk to encourage people to ask questions and to express doubts. But my bottom line is it's a greater risk not to give them the opportunity to ask those questions and to express their doubts, especially church young people, while we have an opportunity to help them through these questions and doubts. I mean, if you think... That your church kids are not asking these questions. You're just flat out wrong. Because Mm. the fact is they're asking these questions. Um, What we want to try to do is to get them to express their questions to the people who love them, who have faith conviction, and who can help them in a loving way work through them.
0: Mm. Well, that's cool. I, and, and Rich, I like how you put that, that there's, there's two kinds of doubts, right? The Bible often speaks about the doubt in the category of unbelief. But um, w- when it speaks, you know, I guess against that, don't doubt, don't disbelieve. But there's also this other doubt with not being having the 100% certainty that we want. And it's important in that category to encourage, uh, encourage, I guess, exploration, right? Running with, with doubts, finding, finding, you know, I guess, adequate answers, Um, to that. And then I guess vilifying that category can have um, very uh, toxic impact on young people's faith and even adults faith. Have you, I guess, just kind of thinking about, um, you know, youth and and everything. And I know you speak with, you know, on the worldview um, website, you talk a lot about the different generations. Um, Have you found our younger people, younger generations becoming more and more skeptical, more and more doubtful?
1: Well, the, the statistics on this are just undeniable in terms of saying younger generations have higher degree of non-involvement in any religion and younger generations have greater degree of skepticism about any religious belief system and more specifically Christianity. So for example, I mean, the general stats on this Uh, pertain to a group of people sometimes called the nuns, people who do not affiliate with any religion at all. In 1990, in America, in general, that stood at about 11%. Now, it's at about 28%. And when you look at the millennial age group, generally higher teens, up into uh, age 30 and early 30s, when you look at the millennial group, that group in 1990 was 11 percent, and now it's at about like 36 percent. Wow! So as you look at the stats and when I go through this and some of my live presentations and my uh, recorded presentations uh, online, you know I've got animated slides that show these charts and everything. It's a very disturbing trend to see how quickly. These groups have grown. And one of the more disturbing uh, recent discoveries has to do with the number of young people who who openly profess to be atheists. They don't believe in any God at all. And if you track that over the last, I don't know how many years, and look at previous generations, whether it's boomers, Gen Xers, or millennials, the percentage of those who say they are atheists, they don't believe in any God, hovers at around 6 to 7%. In America. Mm-hmm. However, the more recent study uh, commissioned for the, the Barna Research Institute found that the youngest generation, Gen Z, uh, this is the group of people approximately 13 years of age now to 18 to 19. So it's the teenage. That group has now almost doubled in the percentage of people who say they don't believe in any kind of God at all. So the Gen X stat on that right now is about 13% compared to the 6 to 7% of previous generations. So when we look wow. at these demographic studies, uh, it, it should be extremely alarming for us. But to bring it home a little bit more closely, I don't think that the typical church person... <laughs> whether you're a member of a Sunday school class, attend church on a Sunday, even periodically, or a part of a small group, it's not that you've got to go out and look for these studies to be alarmed. You should have direct experience right now in your own church with your own young people over the last, uh, let's say, five years or push it out to 10 years. And in all probability, your church and essentially any church would say, given the number of young people who were raised in our congregation who are now out and about and on their own, how many of them have a very strong and vibrant Christian faith who are still actively plugged into church? Well, the general statistics on that um, indicate that about 65% of church young people are not engaged in church in their 20s. Mm. Now, I hope that's a much better uh, statistic for your congregation. But if your congregation is like essentially uh, every other one on average, it's over six out of 10 of our church young people who would not be engaged. So this is a matter about which we should be extremely alarmed. And it should also give us a lot of motivation to start asking ourselves some questions what can we and what should we be doing about it to try to make a difference
0: so rich um wow <laughs> uh, <laughs> i don't know another way to say that is is there do you find a connection between making room for doubt with the youth and their engagement in church
1: well uh yeah, that's a good question. Um I think that when when you when our when the typical young person is in church and growing up in church, maybe their their dad is an elder or a deacon or uh their mom, you know, was involved actively in some way. In other words, they're they're plugged in and and they they do the things that they're supposed to do. Uh and the stats on this indicate a high percentage of them are learning the Bible stories, they're learning about the Bible characters, they're having a fun and positive experience in their church life growing up. All that sounds great. Uh, the Barter Research Institute has good data over periods of time where they indicate that about 90% of church young people say they learn Bible stories, they learned about the characters, they had a fun and positive experience, and still we got the problem. So, yeah. a part of what I would say is this church engagement is absolutely vital and important, but somehow we're not making adequate connections to our church young people. We're not conveying to them or educating them or penetrating them. Um, and so, in a sense, it seems like they're learning facts about the Bible and they're plugged in by having a good time. You know, let's have another hot dog or you know, go on another youth outing of some sort. All of that is important, but somehow that's not working. That's not giving them a sticky faith, you might say. So we have to be, do more. So being engaged in church certainly is a necessary component, but it's not a sufficient one. And what we need to start doing is trying to explain to our young people, and adults too for that matter, but especially explaining to our young people why it is they should be believing what we say that they should believe, uh, we talk far too much about what to believe, and very little about why. Uh, one recent book by uh, uh, James Warner Wallace and uh, Sean McDowell uh, had a have a suggestion has a suggestion that for every what you communicate, give four whys. Hmm. Now that would be a real challenge just because it's gonna completely change our paradigm. But think about that as a as a teacher in the church, as a preacher in the church, as a parent of young people uh, to try to push for this, for every what that you communicate, you try to present Four whys, for why mm. they should. So I believe that the church in general has been woefully neglect, neglectful at doing Christian apologetics. A fancy word that just says presenting to people reason why we have the hope that we've got. First Peter 3, verse 15. Always be ready to make a defense, to give an apologetic for the hope that you've got. And we simply have not seen that as important. Uh, And unfortunately, it may be because we're not adequately prepared to do it. And so we're scared that we're going to get questions that we can't answer. So what do we do? Well, we have the ostrich mentality. We're just going to dig our dig a hole and put our heads in the sand and hopefully it's going to blow over well it'll blow over in the sense that our young people are going to walk away and Mm. we have to do something about it
0: yeah um so rich taking kind of taking a step outside of the christian faith and uh, outside of the church a lot of researchers have kind of noted, uh, I, I don't know how to say it in a way that doesn't sound um, mean. I, for those listening, I don't intend it to sound mean, but they've noticed um, some, uh, an increase in biblical illiteracy um, across across the, I guess the spectrum. Um, is there I, I guess I guess with this increase in um, biblical illiteracy, is there, a, is there a connection with the doubt and not knowing the Bible? Um.
1: There is. And I don't want to, you know, undervalue the importance of knowing Scripture and knowing it well, of being biblically literate. Um, At the same time, part of what I was just talking about here addresses this point to some extent, because it's, it's quite possible to be biblically literate and still not know why why you believe it uh, mm-hmm. or even less be able to explain to somebody else why they should believe it so i mean there are a lot of chain or links in the chain you might say and as we know all, all it takes is one broken link you know to to break the chain and to lose the connection so biblical literacy is a necessary link in the chain there's no question about that Uh, And sometimes people just don't know enough about the Bible to be able to answer some of the questions that other people have. But my point is that many people are not asking the the what-does-the-Bible-say questions. Mm. They're asking why I should believe the Bible in the first place. Mm. And, and, And just quoting Scripture to respond to that kind of question does not answer the question. So another link in the chain, uh, maybe it's several links worth, but at least another link in the chain has to be, we have to take the why questions seriously and be adequately prepared to give an effective response to those why questions. So people are not asking so much anymore I mean, there is a growth in the number of people who are atheist, But I don't think a lot of people, especially involved in some way with church, are asking questions about whether God exists. They're asking questions about what kind of God is this? I mean, what kind mm. of a God is this who could allow a virus to shut down the world yeah. and to bring the kind of pain and suffering that has resulted from what we have been experiencing in recent weeks and for who knows how long, much longer. And we could look at a lot of other you know, similar kinds of events, the whole issue about the character of God. How do you explain having a loving God who's all-powerful and all-good and still have this kind of a problem? Yeah. Well, those are the kinds of questions that, Young people and others are asking, and those are the kinds of questions that, in, in all uh, honesty, need to have some special preparation that goes beyond merely being able to quote you know, a particular passage of Scripture. John 3.16, God so loves the world. Okay, that's true. I believe that with all my heart. But it's one thing to assert it, God so loves the world, and to help somebody to see why it is they should believe that God really does love the world. Mm.
0: Wow. Um, yeah, that's, um, I'm trying to wrap my my mind around that. I mean, that that is kind of, as you said earlier, it is a paradigm shift, you know, to go from, I guess, a, a presenting truth versus like showing why that matters, why we should believe that. Um, are there some, could you, I, uh, maybe, is there like another example you can use of the, um, the
1: why questions? Oh, another example of the why questions. Um, you know, it begins with questions about God's character, questions about the, the, uh, trustworthiness of the authoritativeness of scripture. Why should we believe that? I mean, um, questions about our own salvation even i mean yeah. the 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 point about doubt partly is that some kinds of doubt are intellectual in nature and so we need to address questions about god and the bible and jesus and the resurrection of christ those are those are issues and questions that might challenge the mind or the intellect but a lot of people have why questions about why god didn't make me different as a person because i'm just not i don't make friends easily i don't have very many friends Mm. why is it that i keep struggling in my Christian life, and I keep doing the same things over again when I know they're not right. God does not want me to do it, and yet I continue to do that. I feel like a spiritual and moral failure. Why is it that that's the way it is? And how could God allow that? And how can I have any real sense of confidence that God can really and would really accept me the way I am? See, that's where the why questions get out of the intellectual domain, as important as that is, and come into the very personal existential dimension where people are asking questions about their own personal identity, who Hmm. they are. They're asking questions about their relationship with God and how they can have any genuine confidence Uh, that it is a stable relationship and they're not jumping in and out of heaven every three minutes based upon their behavior from Tuesday to Friday. So I don't know if that addresses what you were getting at, but I think it is important to keep these different what and why questions in mind in the context of some things are more intellectual in nature, some things are very personal or internal in nature, that pertain to who we are, how we feel, to our conscience, and to our moral status. Mm, okay.
0: Yeah, no, I, Rich, that makes sense. You know, and it's a, it's a myriad of, you know, different, um, I guess, issues and perspectives and challenges when it comes to answering the why questions, both, you know, how does this fit? Why does this matter to my life? You know, what relevance does this take, you know, for me? But at the same time, you know, it, it It's why should I trust the message in scripture? Why, why, why is God worthy to give my life to when I see a tsunami wipe people out and being able to provide answers um, in in that kind of vein? And, and so, okay, Um, Rich, that's really good. Um, Thanks for sharing that. What um, would you give any advice? Let's just say somebody has a friend who's very skeptical, and they're wrestling with that. Whether the, whether the Bible is trustworthy, whether they can trust the God that's revealed in the Bible. Are there some like do's and don'ts for somebody trying to help a friend wrestle with those kind of doubts without turning them away from God or away from the Bible?
1: Yeah. Well, uh, the first do is do something.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I think one of the hardest things for us to do is to be bold enough to initiate any conversation about these um, eternal issues, as ironic as that seems. I mean, you would think that the most important matters would be the things that we would be prompted to talk about the most, but somehow it just doesn't turn out that way. It seems Mm. that often the eternal matters are the things that are most difficult for us even to initiate any kind of conversation about. So the first thing, the first on the do list is to do something. And the first on the don't list, I suppose, would be don't approach this person with the sense that you've got something to tell them. Hmm. Now, that itself might be a paradigm change for a lot of us. It's not that you don't have something that you can tell them. It doesn't mean that you don't have something that you should, uh, in some way, get around to communicating to them. I guess I'm talking more about a mood here than I am the content of what you share. And far too many times I believe Christian people have the mood or the mentality, I've got something that you need to hear. Now shut up and listen to me and make sure you pay attention because I know what I'm talking about now I know that's a little bit exaggerated but I you know I'm being somewhat hyperbolic to make a point that I still think nonetheless is true what I would recommend instead is that you you learn to ask questions and you learn less how to tell people what you think you know mm. Now you need to know a substantial amount, I think, to ask the real good penetrating questions. But asking questions resolves an awful lot of challenges. First of all, if you're talking to somebody who's already skeptical about the Christian faith, they are already they've already got, you know, their hands up. They're already have an alarm going off, and the alarm is telling them be careful, don't listen too much to what this person is going to say to you. Mm-hmm. What they're not expecting is for you to be genuine in asking questions about them to find out who they are, what they really believe, and to try to find out why they believe or don't believe what they believe. So one thing is don't presume that you know what they believe or don't believe until you've established a good relationship and time to communicate with them, asking them questions to share honestly what they believe. And they will appreciate that. That that will help bring those barriers down and will also allow you, if you're willing, to share some things about your own approach to faith that won't come across as though you know all the answers. Now you can be confident in your answers, but you can also come across as someone who's also wrestling with questions about faith. But you can still have confidence in those core principles of the Christian faith, and they need to hear your confidence. But they at the same time they also need need to sense your humility. So asking questions, and asking questions and communicating in a way that that manifests your humility with them will do far more than you're having four points that you've hunted up on a website and you're going to throw at them as though all they need to hear are those four points and then Jesus is going to come to them and the Holy Spirit is going to convict them. Uh, it'd be nice if it worked that way, but uh, it hardly ever does but I do believe that by asking questions and prompting them to think about tough questions. I mean, questions about what they believe and why. Well, why do you believe that? Well, most people who are skeptical about the Christian faith haven't thought anything any more about why they don't believe what you believe than you've thought about why you do believe it. So. Don't be afraid of them asking you a tough question that you can't answer very well because you've got every prerogative to ask questions of them that they can't answer very well. But I'm convinced that by asking questions in a humble way, you basically fertilize soil for the Holy Spirit to come work on whatever seed you are able to plant. And in the final analysis, it's not you that will convert anybody anyway. It is the work of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart and the mind, uh, the soul of that person. But I, I firmly believe that by asking questions in a humble way, it actually provides a fertile ground for the Holy Spirit to work and for the Holy Spirit to prompt that person to become convinced and convicted of the truth of God. Jesus said it this way. He identified several reasons why the Holy Spirit was coming. To convict of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. It's the Holy Spirit's responsibility to do that conviction. But we can play an enormously important role in uh, giving the right kind of soil for the Holy Spirit to work. And that, I think, is a great way to do it.
0: Man, that's good. That is really good advice in in rich. As I think about my own story, you know, I, I came to Christ at 17 or just before I turned 17, and it took me a while. And it was for me being able to ask questions and have friends ask me questions that opened the door for me to continue to have, I guess, a dialogue about faith, about the Bible that eventually led to me giving my life to Christ, but having, I guess, a a short, succinct soundbite answer would have closed the door for me to have ongoing conversation because I would have felt like, well, they've resolved the issue for me, so I can't go back and ask them more about it. You know, with them asking questions, it kind of opens the door for me to continue to have a conversation with them. Is that is kind of like what you're saying?
1: Yeah, that 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 is a great point that that um, extends you know what I was trying to get at, and and that is we can come across in such a way that we actually stifle any future conversation. And why is that? Well, because you've given the answer. So if you've given the answer, well, what else is there to talk about? So I think what what you're getting at in part is that we can communicate in such a way that we can provide truth to people and we can do so with conviction. But we want to leave them with a... An open-endedness, let's say, yeah. uh, to, to use a more spatial metaphor. Um, when people leave a great time at your house and you've had great conversation, there's a sense in which you can slam the door uh, in such a way that they they just don't feel like they're that welcome to come back. But there's also a psychological and kind of a communicating sense in which after you end your conversation, you never really close the door. The door is always left open. But that needs to be an awareness that not only you have, that needs to be a sense that you somehow convey to them when they're leaving, that there's always more to talk about, and that there's always more that you need to talk about because you are growing in your faith as you hope they are growing in their faith. So that's a mm-hmm. great way to extend the point that I was talking about.
0: Well, awesome. Rich, uh, I just want to say uh, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and insight uh, and your investment in the ministry of Lincoln, as well as the Room for Doubt and Worldview ISO. I'm very, very, very grateful for that. So thank you.
1: You are welcome. And make sure you go to Room for Doubt app and download it today on your device. I will do we that. We do have a lot of uh, excellent uh, resources. By the way, this Room for Doubt uh, thing, I don't know if you're aware, but the people who helped write our six-week curriculum that's just a part of what we offer include uh, Lee Strobel, who's a very well-known Uh, Christian evangelist and apologist, uh, well known for his books called The Case for Faith and The Case for Christ. A movie is out even about him. Mark Middleberg, uh, who's also a well known uh, Christian evangelist and Christian apologist, helped us to write that material. And Gary Poole, who uh, has written almost all of the small group curriculum for Lee Strobel's books, uh, wrote our small group curriculum for our initial six week. uh, uh, basic questions uh, series so uh, we've had some really good resources that we've used and uh, we're continuing to expand the curricular offerings with summer camp curriculum we right now have a curriculum or a quarantine question curriculum okay. so if you go to our website roomfordoubt.com, the home page has quarantine questions up there if you're looking for some things to do while you are spending a little more time at home we have some great suggestions For you, So new things are coming, but we're excited about what we're doing. And uh, I thank you for the opportunity to share with you today.
0: Well, thank you, Rich. I appreciate it. That was an eye-opening conversation. And I feel guilty for spending so much time talking about the what than I do on the why. And hopefully this conversation was encouraging and helpful to you. Next week, we're going to be talking about the problem of evil and suffering. Does suffering challenge a belief in God, or at least challenge the goodness of God? Well, that is my conversation with my good friend and mentor, Mike Gunderson. Mike is my former pastor out in California, and he has had his fair share of experiences with suffering, and his wisdom and his unique perspective with dealing with it is worth listening to. Well, I hope this conversation has helped you in your life so that you can make a greater impact in your life. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week as we talk about doubt and suffering.